Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Happy Easter, Crossway Church. He is risen indeed. And please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Oh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. And uh, hello to those watching online. We love you, we miss you, and we hope that you're doing well. Have you ever watched an Apple presentation? I mean the computer company Apple. Uh, or any tech reveal event. You know, those press events where tech companies shows off their new hardware. I used to get quite excited to see the latest gadget. I still enjoy gadgets. Maybe some of you uh, can relate to that. Maybe some of you are like, what are you, you know, that's, I would never be interested in such a thing. But nonetheless, uh, these used to be really big deals, these press conferences, these press events. And I don't think they're as big of a deal. I think it's calmed down quite a bit because we're so used to so many gadgets in our world now. But it's, they're still happening, and they're still somewhat big. But they used to be really big, especially Apple events. And those press events were so huge precisely because of the big reveal. Which new products, which shiny new products would be revealed? We couldn't wait to see it. Uh, Steve Jobs was famous for saying that the consumer doesn't know what they want, the customer doesn't know what they want until we show it to them. And various Apple executives during these times would take the stage, talk about the latest innovations in their area of expertise, they'd show off some new hardware or software, but the most dramatic part of these press events happened when the late founder, CEO Steve Jobs, he would conclude, he was famous for saying something like, oh yeah, just one more thing. It was always one more thing. And then he would reveal something that people would just go crazy for. It was quite the event. And it was very well done production. It built expectation and drama. And over the years, as he did this uh, event by event, it added excitement to the whole affair because people wanted to watch to see what would happen at the very end. And they wanted to see what, what would be revealed. Show us the great reveal. Show us something really special. Something we haven't seen before. Something amazing. Well... There's a far greater reveal event to come, even greater than that, far greater than that, and that's our subject on this Easter Sunday. That far greater reveal is based on the greatest reveal event that ever was, the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. I believe our text is making this proposal to us this Easter morning. Wait patiently in hope until the revealing of incomparable glory. Wait patiently in hope until the revealing of incomparable glory. We're going to read our text and then we're going to take this text in two points. So Romans chapter 18, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Let me read it for you. If you have your text, there's scripture there in front of you. Have it out there and follow along with your Bible. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Wait patiently in hope until the revealing of incomparable glory. Two points for today. First of all, the sufferings of this present time. The sufferings of this present time. Our text mentions the sufferings of the time that they lived in, but we could certainly apply to the times that we live in. The Scriptures for us. So it mentions the sufferings of this present time, and we could certainly talk of the suffering of humanity. We only need to look at the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. There have been so many reports that can be hard to know. Some reports in the news that can be hard to know what's actually true. But one thing is certain. There is a tremendous amount of human death and suffering on the ground there. And it looks like it's going to take a long time. It looks like there will be much more suffering. It looks like the effect of it will be far-reaching. Perhaps even worse than the suffering that's happening right now is the reality that there's nothing new about this suffering, that since the fall of Adam, humans have been killing one another. And then we're aware of our own suffering as humans, right? Personally. The illnesses, the conflicts, the struggles, the emotions, the failures, the lack of provision, the terrible experiences that we've had in our past. We could go on and on. Usually, I think for most of us, we're most aware of our own suffering because it is so intimate to us. It's personal to us. But sometimes we're even aware of the suffering of those that we love. Those that we're in personal relationship with, the, our family members, or our friends, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and we pray for them and we care for them, but we look at their suffering. Sometimes their suffering is so severe, it just, it just breaks our hearts for them because we can't remove it from them. And that becomes another burden that we carry, and rightly so, because we carry one another's burdens. We could talk on and on about human suffering, and we have done so, and we will continue to do so from this pulpit as it is relevant to us and from the Scriptures as it springs, because it's a critical part of the life that we live right now in the flesh. And so we have to talk about it from time to time. But we need to note here that our text takes a different turn. A different turn than what you might think 
it would take when you raise the prospect of suffering in this world. It raises the category of suffering, which includes human suffering, but then it focuses on non-human, and biblically speaking, it would be right to say subhuman, underneath human creation, non-human creation, or subhuman creation, the suffering, in other words, of anything that has been created that is not human. And see here what I mean from Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that an interesting term? It's not uncommon in the Old Testament to personify creation, to, to, to talk about or write about creation as if it was a person. So, for instance, Psalm 65, verses 12 to 13, I'll read for you. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. See, the personification of creation so that we can understand it better. And Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, is doing some of that here. So then, how does creation suffer? How is it suffering? Because of this fall and the sin. Well, first the text tells us that creation also has to be patient. Just like us, it's waiting But you know what? It's going to have to wait much longer than us, right? Because our lives are like a vapor in this flesh. We have what? 70, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and then it's over. But the creation, the creation soldiers on, waiting, longing, subjected. Our scripture likens the waiting of creation to childbearing, to to labor. So it's not ordinary loitering. It's not simply like, well, you know, my wife's in the car right now. I'll just wait in the car. Uh, I'm sorry, my wife's in the store right now. I'll wait in the car. I got my phone. I could read the news or whatever. Get some email done. It's not ordinary loitering. This is a painful waiting. It's excruciating moment by moment. And as the moments go by, it's harder to wait. The pain increases. The longing and the desire increases and is not yet resolved. That is the essence of patience. The Scripture says that creation is groaning while it waits. It's in pain. And I think we can hear that groaning if we listen well. The creation, the earth, the creatures, the light and the stars and the moon and the wind and the clouds and the sky and the sea and the land. All of it wants to be more alive, more beautiful, more colorful, more productive. You can tell just by interacting with it. It was meant for more, more vibrancy than we can imagine, but more we know than it has. Have you ever gone to the grocery store looking for a certain fruit? I got to spend a couple of, of months in Nigeria as a young man working with a missionary, and there was 
One of the sweetest things was being able to walk out into the grounds and and take fruit off the tree. And I got hooked on mangoes at the time. And, and, and I think this is especially true for us in this area, right? If you go into a grocery store and you see these pathetic, you know, hard, unripened mangoes, and you're like, but it's a mango. And so you go to eat it and you're like, ah, it's not very good, you know, but I'll eat it anyway because it's still, it, it gives me the hint of mango. But then other times you get, you just, you get it right. And it's just, big, beautiful, ripe, juicy mango. There's nothing like it. See, that's the difference between what creation is now, that pathetic fruit in the grocery store, versus what it will be, what it longs to be, what it waits to be in the future. That's all of creation. All of it holds that potential. All of it will be restored and renewed And creation, it's waiting, it has to be patient for that time, but it's not suffering for its own wrongdoing. It's not like us. It's not like its father, Adam, like the human father, Adam, falls into rebellion and sin by his own will. And therefore God subjects him to the curse And see, that's when this happens. When does it happen? This is when it happens. It happens when Adam falls. When is creation subjected? And by who is it subjected? It's subjected by God when Adam falls. You see, when Adam fell, he was cursed and all of humanity in him. So you look at Genesis chapter 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There we go. Because, thank you, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That's when God subjected it. And he didn't do it because creation did anything wrong. Creation can't even sin. Non-human creation, it's not able to sin. And that's when God subjected it. And so if you ever feel like it's not fair that we get punished for Adam's sin, our representative head of the human race, if you ever feel like that's not fair, like, come on, Adam. Or God, you can't hold me accountable for this, even though you and I sin all the time and we know it. If you ever feel like it's not fair, just think about poor creation how it got subjected to the curse because of Adam's sin. And we see this suffering of creation as well in this way. Creation is subjected to futility. Futility. Futility, that that idea of you're you're working, you're endeavoring, you're, you're doing so with a goal in mind. But you can never reach the goal. You can never get there. No matter how hard your efforts are to do whatever that is you're doing, to build whatever that is you're building, to make whatever it is that you're making, to, to uh, accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish as perfectly as possible, you cannot achieve that perfection. You can't do it quickly enough. You can't, you can't do it in the time frame. You can't do it for the cost. You can't. You just, you can't. Because of futility. 
And the earth has been subjected to futility. It's wearing away. It's not being renewed as it should have been. It's remarkable. It's, it's incredible. It perseveres in an incredible fashion. It provides life support for us in the most amazing way. But it's wearing. It's wearing down. The earth is not as it should have been. It should have been an unstoppable garden, constantly renewing itself. Instead of the weeds growing and the produce just doing okay, it should have been that the produce, the fruits and the vegetables grow in abundance and the weeds are either non-existent or they're minimal. And anyone who's been doing their mulching at this time can appreciate this, right? Like, oh, there's more work here than I realized. During a couple of centuries before Christ, many Jewish authors took up apocalyptic writing. They took up writing that would reveal what things would look like in the new age because things were so hard for them. They put their hope on the new age. I thought a bit from those writings got to the ideal well. I'll just read it for you. I think the picture is strong enough. That which will happen at that time bears upon the whole earth. Therefore, all who live will notice it. The earth will also yield fruits 10,000 fold. And on one vine will be a thousand branches. And one branch will produce a thousand clusters. And one cluster will produce a thousand grapes. And one grape will produce a core of wine. And those, I don't know what a core is, by the way. I have to look that up again. But it sounds big. So one grape. And those who are hungry will enjoy themselves, and they will, moreover, see marvels every day. For winds will go out in front of me every morning to bring the fragrance of aromatic fruits and clouds at the end of the day to distill the dew of health. And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high and they will eat of it in those years because these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time. Now, we don't consider the second apocalypse of Baruch as scripture. But I thought that was a, a good imaginative way to think about what the earth should have been. It's a creation of suffering. It suffers and it waits and it groans along with us. It can't achieve its full purpose. It's not all that it should be. It's been subjected outside of its will. But we should revisit that interesting thought. Why? When the subject here is about comparing the suffering of the present to the glory that is to come, why does the Holy Spirit bring our attention to the suffering of creation. Well, it's because this suffering that we face is part of something far bigger than we tend to think about. Far bigger. We, we tend to get so stuck on ourselves, don't we? I do. I tend to get stuck on myself. I'm suffering a bit today with my Achilles heel, my Achilles tendon. I was feeling well. I was playing basketball with my wife's nephew and my daughters. It was me and Sianna against this guy and Felicity. The good guys against the bad guys. We were losing. So I thought I better turn it up a notch. I don't need to tell you this, but we took the lead. We pulled ahead. 
but I thought we need some insurance. And so I went up for a jump shot and I felt like I could fly. I must have had a four inch vertical going. It's amazing. Look out, 51 year old overweight man flying through the air. And then I heard the snap. Yeah, I heard it. It was bad. Collapsed on the ground. And as I felt the pain, I thought, I can't believe that just happened to me. I've heard about that. I can't believe it happened to me. And I can't believe I'm going to the hospital now. The moral of this story is that I went out on top. That's the moral. So I'm retiring, and my last game is victory. So my, my nephew, Grace's nephew, it, it's over. I win. <laughs> no, that's not the moral of the story. The, the, here's the thing. The moral of the story is my ruptured tendon is, it is a little bit of personal suffering for me, right? Many suffer far more, but it's just one more tiny example of the futility that all creation has been subjected to. You see, we think so small, we think so selfishly, but God is up to something huge, something cosmic, something so entirely, transcendently transformative that even now for me to focus on my own pain is to, is to make a huge mistake and to miss out on the hope of the glory that's yet to come. You see? All of our suffering is such. There is great, great glory coming. Wait, wait patiently in hope until the revealing of incomparable glory. And so let's look at point number two, the glory to be revealed. The glory to be revealed. I think we have to go right back to our text here. So look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, there's that comparison. It's the glory that is to be revealed versus the suffering of this present time. So the glory to be revealed must be beyond comprehension if the sufferings that we now face shouldn't even be compared to it. Just think about that. It says here it's not even worth comparing it. It's not worth thinking about. Think about this. It's like, it's like saying to not even be concerned about getting cancer or having heart disease or dying. You know, it almost makes our sufferings sound trite. Now, don't misunderstand me. We need to take in the whole uh, revelation of Scripture. And so, when one of us is suffering, the rest of us should be mourning with them and seeking to carry their burdens. Please don't misunderstand. But in terms of my personal relationship with suffering, in terms of your personal relationship with suffering, in terms of our corporate relationship with suffering, we need to keep this in mind. It's not worth comparing. It's just not worth it. And how glorious the glory that is coming will be. 
that it's not worth comparing. You see, when we see that glory, no matter what we've suffered, we're going to immediately say, without hesitation, without doubt, with no second thoughts, the moment we see that glory, we are immediately going to say, we're going to affirm it from our hearts. It will burst forth from us. We will say, oh yeah, that was worth it. That will be our immediate disposition. The moment we see it. It'll be kind of like a child who can't remember cutting their teeth as an infant. That's what our sorrows will be like. We, it's like that the child doesn't, the, the two, three, four-year-old, they don't remember cutting their teeth. Even though when they were cutting their teeth, they cried constantly. It's just so far in the past for them. That's what it will be like, our sufferings will be like for us when the glory that is coming will be revealed. So what is that glory? What is it? In some ways, the glory that is to be revealed is simple to quantify. But in other ways, it's impossible because, because the depths of the riches of the glory of God are inexhaustible. And so the part of the glory is that we will forever experience his increasing glory. But let's do our best to understand it and quantify it. First, let's recognize how this glory is revealed. Look at verse 18 again. We can see that the, the verse that's up there on the screen. We can see that the glory is revealed to us. And you see where it says to us. That can be challenging to, um, to translate, but that seems to be the best translation. So in other words, it's going to be revealed to us. We'll see it. And that's quite awesome. We're going to see that glory. But there's a, another aspect of this glory we should recognize that this glory is going to be revealed in us or through us. So to us and in us and through us. And, and to see that, look at uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. The next passage up on the screen. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? All of God's children are the sons of God. In other words, it's calling us sons to say, we get the inheritance. It comes right down from the Father to the Son. And because Jesus is the, the true Son and we're in the Son, we're sons of God, we all receive the inheritance. So we get it as well. Let me keep reading there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's us. Everyone who belongs to Christ. It, it, we're going to have his glory revealed to us and in us and through us. So how is it revealed in us? Well, we can see that when this age is over, the glory will be revealed in us. And we know that when this age is over, those who belong to Christ, we're going to receive new bodies, resurrected and glorified bodies. This is why Paul doesn't allow the Corinthians to, to doubt the resurrection. He doesn't uh, allow anyone to go away confused about 
uh, the true perspective. Will there, will there be a resurrection? Will we just live as spirits into the future? Will that be what our life will consist of? No, we will be embodied as we are now, but as we should have been since the beginning with a glorified, perfected, incorruptible body. A glorious thing that will live in a new creation a new heavens and new earth that is free from the bondage of subjection to the curse. Resurrected, glorified bodies are to come. This is why it's preferable in the Christian tradition to bury the dead. Because we bury our dead in the hope of resurrection. That's why it's preferable. And we know that that's coming. Peter's going to help us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you can see that the resurrection is in part the glory that will be revealed to us and in us and through us. And we with our resurrected bodies will shine forth the glory of God. But this includes... It demonstrates, it shows us how we receive this glory. How we're going to get this glory. You see, our glory is not our own glory. The entire thing is contingent on another's glory. Our glory is a derived glory. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from His glory. Like the moon reflecting the sun, that's where our glory will come from. Peter helps us in this too. You can see there where it says we are born again to a living hope. That's a hope that lives in us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, because he's already been resurrected and taken on a glorified, incorruptible body, we know that we will share that glory with him. So the glory that is revealed in the full glory of Christ, shown in Him, and show, is also shown in a derivative way in us and through us. And that is what we're a part of. Let's think a little bit further. What is the glory of Christ? Well, when we think of the glory, we may think of brightness. We may be, we think of shining light. That's not wrong because brightness seems to accompany glory. It just makes sense. Sometimes we even say that a person's um, countenance shines brightly, meaning their, their face seems bright because of, of the hope in it and the joy on it, the peace in it. Isn't that amazing? And, and sometimes people even stand out, their faces stand out in a crowd because of, of the countenance that they have. It's, it's one of those, those, those uh, moments that demonstrate to us how important the face is that God gave us. It's no small thing. We're made in the image of God. He gives us a face. And our countenance is to shine with the light of Christ. Yeah, brightness. 
But brightness is not the essence of glory. It may, it may come because of glory. It may show because of glory. It, it, the glory of Christ is his character, his perfections, his truth, his holiness, his otherness, his might, and his power, his authority and command. These all and so much more are part of the glory, part of what makes Jesus so glorious. But perhaps the best way to think of his glory is this. He is glorified in that. When he returns, he will then be the undisputed ruler of the world. King of kings and Lord of lords. Not one single voice will deny it. Not one tongue or mouth will open and wag and doubt his authority and his rule. When that time comes, it will be abundantly clear who the king is, who the ruler is. Consider a leader you admire in business, organization, in politics, military, in academics, or athletics, or in the arts. Consider that leader that you admire. Not one of them will be able to lay claim to the utter completeness of the coming reign of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We get glimpses of His glory in the Scriptures. Bits of revelation of this one who is life, who is ruler, who is glory. He wakes from perfectly calm sleep to calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Commands creation in such a way. Or He teaches in such a manner that people marvel at His words and at His tone Or he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration and shines like a star while conversing with Moses and Elijah. Or we can think about the angel choir announcing his birth. The dark sky, untainted by light pollution, suddenly disrupted with blinding light and thousands upon thousands of powerful creatures. The angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is Pleased. What an introduction. What glory he must embody. But to think that all of that was a precursor. A precursor to his resurrection. All of that and so much more. A precursor to his resurrection. Jesus says to Martha, Didn't I tell you that if you trusted, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He raises Lazarus from the dead, revealing that he's the life. And death cannot defeat him, but instead he will defeat sin and death once and for all and give life to all who are in him forever. His resurrection proves it. All of that precursor to his resurrection. And then we get this. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord 
descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now that's an angel of the Lord and that's the glory of the angel that has this effect on the guards, on the strongest of the strong men in the world. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Can you imagine the glory of the one you had seen die. Shamed, humiliated. Death was heaped upon him as fully as death could be heaped upon him and he was buried and tucked away, stone rolled in front, guarded by soldiers, but here he stood alive and greeting them enthusiastically. What? Glory. Oh, if he reigns over death and he reigns over sin, he reigns over this world. The only thing they could possibly do was fall down and worship him. That is glory. Then Jesus has ascended to heaven. Think about that picture. He goes up. He goes up and disappears. This is no ordinary body. It's a perfected body. It's an incorruptible one. And what does it say? It says, I am over all. I'm above all. This is all mine. And I will come back and I will demonstrate that fully. So right now his glory is shown. And yet there will be even more glory to come when he is revealed. And we are revealed as belonging to him. What incredible glory. One more example of his glory comes from Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, John has the vision. He's in the throne room. God is there. He has a redemptive plan. But the redemptive plan is sealed in the scrolls. And God has a plan there. It's written down. But no one can execute it. No one can reveal it. No one can unfold it. There's no one found to do so. And so God's plan of salvation cannot move forward. And we are hopeless and lost. And this is why John weeps bitterly and loudly when no one in all of heaven or earth is found who can open the scroll. And then he looks. 
And he sees the lamb standing as though slain. And he sees, a, he sees the lamb who's alive standing. And he hears the angel call him the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the one who gave himself and yet conquers all. He takes the scroll. The lion and the lamb takes the scroll from the hand of the father and opens it, unfolding his plan for the redemption of God's people and God's cosmic plan for the ages. What glory and when that happens, the host of heaven, the elders, they throw down their crowns and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the, the, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That, that is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shown forth on that Easter many years ago and will shine forth even greater when he returns. And you and I, dear friends, those that belong to Christ, those that belong to him, that trust him, will share in that glory and we will reign with him. The hope of the glory of Christ and that we would share in his glory is the basis of, of our salvation. So think of that hope here because of Easter. Because of Easter, what happened on Easter? We go from a rebellious sinner with God's target of righteous judgment right on our hearts. We go from that. We go from that to those who delight in and share in the glory of Christ and because of Christ become sons of God. And that is, that is a very encouraging thought, isn't it? That's the kind of truth that can, hold, that can hold a person through life until we see the face of Christ. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.